Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode, I'm joined by Phil Burgess and Tony Pedragon for us to talk about the final two races of the year. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. The championships are coming down to the wire in all categories. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace! This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Brian Loans, and coming to you just a couple of days after uh, an incredibly exciting NHRA Fall Nationals at the Texas Motorplex, a really awesome kind of barn burner of a race, especially when we got to Sunday into the eliminations of all of our Camping World Drag Racing Series categories. Lots of great drag racing as well on the Lucas Oil side of things, Pro Modified. We're going to talk about all of that. Um Leading into the race, of course, a lot of excitement. Uh, it was a big weekend down there in Ennis, Texas. We had um, arguably one of the largest crowds we've had, uh, you know, all year since the COVID nineteen situation kind of uh, washed over us all. So it was great to see the fans down there, and a lot of great kind of history at the Texas Motorplex continued in twenty twenty, unbroken for so many years, and that was a, a fantastic thing. Obviously, we started the Camping World era of NHRA drag racing at this event, and this coming week, we will all be traveling to Houston, Texas for the Spring Nationals, which, of course, are being run the week after the Fall Nationals, but hey, whatever. It's a name. It's kind of funny. I'm sure we'll be joking about it over the course of the broadcast, but at the end of the day... Um, being on these back-to-back-to-back style of weeks is really something that is uh, a bit of a change for so many of us after the break we've had. We had a couple races in a row. We'd stop, have a couple races in a row, and stop again. So to kind of run out the se- the season, this uh, you know St. Louis with a week off and then Dallas, Houston, Vegas feels a little bit more normal. It feels like we're on kind of the same normal style of uh, travel turn that we typically are during a season. And we're really going to find out how the teams uh, react to it and how they adapt to it as this has been a different and will be a different type of cadence and pace than they have been used to. I have a feeling the teams are all embracing this. And obviously the trip between Dallas and Houston comparatively between events is very short. We have this kind of small Texas swing we're making right now, which logistically made a lot of sense. Certainly glad to be able to go down to Baytown to have that race and Weather's looking really good so far. Going to be in the high 70s, uh, low 80s on race day and over the course of Saturday, Friday, and Saturday as well. So uh, looking forward to a great weekend in Baytown, Texas, down there by the Gulf of Mexico. You know, one of the things I think that uh, is so important when we look at the kind of current points chases and the situation that is uh, confronting some of our competitors in terms of where they are in the points, especially those in the top three. I think we got to give perspective to all that stuff. And that is why on today's show, I have Tony Pedragon and Phil Burgess coming on to kind of um, not only put a point on the Dallas race, but also to set up our Houston and Las Vegas events and really uh, kind of pick their brains a little bit about where they think various contenders are at. Uh, we are going to have points and a half at the very last race. So even though you look at somebody like Aaliyah Pruitt, who's back probably further than she wants to be, of course, at 148 out of first place, um, if she can make up a couple and go into Vegas and run the table, you know, she's still got a chance to win the thing. We look at Nitro Funny Car, you know, 77 points out is Tommy Johnson Jr., uh, he still has a very good chance. Jay Coughlin, 93 out behind Jason Lyon and Erica Enders. Again, that 93 is a lot, but it's not an impossible thing to overcome, especially with the points and a half at the final event. The Pro Mod category is insane. Uh, Stevie Jackson, Brandon Snedder, and Mike Janis are in, uh, I don't want to say a dead heat, but there's three cars that are within basically two rounds of each other. And we know how unpredictable that category is. We have seen all three of those guys go out early. We have seen all three of those guys win races this year, so it'll be fun to watch to see how that whole thing shapes up. And Pro Stock Motorcycle, probably the most wide open of all right now. Matt Smith leading the class. He is 49 points ahead of his teammate Scotty Polachek, 59 ahead of Andrew Hines, who really has been a bit of a silent killer this year. I mean, Andrew Hines has not been a headline maker in Pro Stock Motorcycle in 2020, but there he is within striking distance of first place. And Angel, 93 points back right now. I had occasion to run into Angel on the way to the airport, flying out of Dallas. We were on the rental car shuttle together, and she was still smarting mightily over the red light that she had to put her out of competition. She did have the motorcycle to beat. We all thought so. 
She certainly thought so. And unfortunately, against Joey Gladstone, she said, you know, my hand reacted before my brain told me to do it uh, or told it to do that. And it just happened. And I think anybody who's raced, even me, uh, raced with my dad for several years as uh, bracket racing has had that moment occur when all of a sudden the car is moving and you did not really want it to be moving at that point. Um, drama in terms of entertainment at Dallas during eliminations. Obviously, uh, it was not entertaining for Matt Smith that his bike would not start against Michael Phillips. That was a shocker. I mean, that was an absolute shocker in Pro Stock Motorcycle that your points leader, a guy who had won the delayed final round from St. Louis, a guy who looked all the world like just someone who was going to donkey stomp everybody out on that day on Sunday, didn't even make a run. And he was disgusted, as you'd imagine he would be. Michael Phillips was less than disgusted. He loved uh, the fact that he was able to pick up a round win. Other moments in the pro stock motorcycle category, Jerry Savoie. Guy's great. Love Jerry, a former champion. But 2020 has just not been his year. Coming into Dallas, he had one round win in the entire season. And he didn't even run St. Louis, likely because the bike was kind of scuffling. And I'm guessing it's not that much fun when you're showing up and not able to uh, get yourself past the first round but once over the course of a year. But as we talked a lot about on the show, Jerry had been in five straight final rounds in Dallas. He made it six straight final rounds, and he beat Joey Gladstone for the Wally. So his ownership of that racetrack is uncanny. I mean, you really have to start looking very hard to find people who have been in six sequential final rounds at the same race. We always default back to that incredible Bob Glidden stat of 13 straight U.S. Nationals final rounds, but we can almost start talking in those tones about Jerry Savoie in Dallas, Texas. Jerry, of course, will be competing in Houston. That is, uh, in so many ways, his home track in terms of an NHRA national event facility. So we're going to get a lot of those Louisiana Bayou racers out there as well. Speaking of Bayou racers, Randall Andrus locking up the title of the Mickey Thompson at Top Fuel Harley-Davidson category. Spectacular for Randall Andrus. He has had a, a dream season. He has won six races, uh, basically won all but one race, I believe, in the in the Mickey Thompson Top Fuel Harley category this year. So an unstoppable force. He earned it. Those machines are so entertaining to watch, so unpredictable. And Randall Andrus has not made it look easy, but he has certainly showed off his skill set as one of the longtime riders in the category and a very deserved champion in Pro Stock Motorcycle. Nitro Funny Car delivered the goods as it has pretty much every race of the year so far. We come down to a final with Jack Beckman and Matt Hagen, number one and two in the points. Beckman gets the better of Hagen, pulls within four points of him in this Funny Car title chase. And... You know, for Jack Beckman, obviously, we've told the story a thousand times at this point, but uh, Infinite Hero not returning for 2021. He does not have a deal lined up, does not have a sponsor lined up, and he is prepared uh, to support his family. He's prepared to go back into the world of uh, elevator mechanics, which is what he did as he was a sportsman racer coming into the professional ranks. He went back. He's renewed his uh, union card, so to speak. He is ready to go back to work. Uh, in the event he does not have sponsorship coverage for 2021. He certainly hopes he does. Jack is a big drag racing historian like I am, loves the history, loves to kind of learn about the roots of the sport. And so for him to grab that first Camping World Wally was a big deal. And he said so over the course of the weekend. He talked about how much it would mean to get the first Camping World Wally, to have that designation as being the first funny car winner in the Camping World era. And he pulled it off in fine fashion. It was astonishing to see what Medlin and uh, Dean Antonelli and the rest of the crew did with that race car to have it run three 390s in a row. Went three three nine zero eight, three three nine zero three, and three three nine zero eight again. So three runs within five thousandths is uncanny, and it speaks to the level of ability of his team and certainly of the uh, the crew chief and core on that race car. So it is really really cool that. Jack Beckman did what he did and has kept Matt Hagen um, on his toes. And Matt, you know, is very complimentary of Jack, as Jack is of Matt, as they should be. The two teams are head and shoulders really above everybody else except Tommy Johnson Jr., who is in the hunt, only 77 points back. TJ is going to have to step up just like the team did in St. Louis, not saying they have to win the race in Houston, but what I am saying is they need to maintain – I'm saying at minimum maintain the 77-point gap and really carve into it a little bit. Points and a half helps this case in Vegas, but you really want to get yourself closer to uh, being square, if you will, 
with Hagen and Beckman. He could also use some luck. I mean, everybody that's trailing could use uh, the leaders to, to slip on a banana peel, so to speak. So Nitro Funny Car, spectacular, very well done. Top Fuel, obviously Steve Torrance, Billy Torrance, the final round of Father and Son again for the fifth year in a row. Someone named Torrance who's in a final round at Dallas, which is their home racetrack. So uh, this is now Billy's second time in the uh, finals of this race in a row. Um, he, in 2019, won it, beating Jordan Vandegrift when Vandegrift had a mechanical problem. And then in 2020, loses to his son. A great battle. Lots of Capco supporters, family, friends, business associates at the race watching. And they put both cars in the final. The way they did that was they took on Coletta Motorsports head-on in the semifinals, meaning Sean Langdon had to race Steve Torrance and, and Doug Coletta had to race Billy. And it went Torrance's way both times with Doug having some tire smoke and Sean getting outrun. It was uh, it was a cool confrontation. You know, we don't often see something as clear-cut as that in terms of the competitive lines of what we're trying to do when you have one entire team's remaining uh, set of cars and the other uh, team's remaining set of cars running head up against each other in the semis is is really something else. And it was a resounding victory for Capco contractors, for Steve Torrance, for uh, Bobby Lagana, for Richard Hogan, the entire team. And right now, Steve leads Doug Coletta by 51 points. And out of everyone, it's the largest margin of the four categories in terms of the number one and two vehicles. And it feels that way. Uh, we're going to have to see Doug Coletta and his entire Mac Tools team. We're going to have to see exactly what they are made of in this Dallas, or rather in this Houston race, because if Steve Torrance goes to another final round, if Doug Coletta is not there to contest it, it's going to get ugly in terms of the points. And as I mentioned, Leah, 148 back. She needs not only Steve Torrance to not make a final, she needs him to go out very early, and she needs to basically run the table to really, truly put herself back in the conversation pro stock car i think provided um some of the most incredible entertainment at dallas a very scrappy win by matt hartford and i mean that in the best of ways i think it was the the kind of scrappiest pro stock win we have seen in years meaning that this was not a guy that showed up and qualified one and just dominated everybody in performance and outran the whole field by several hundredths of a second this was a guy who had to dive into the bag of tricks multiple times over the course of the day. And, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about when Tony Pedregon and, and uh, Phil Burgess are on is the fact that, you know, with his strategy against Erica in the semifinal rounds, which was effective, he really did something we very rarely see, which is he made a strategy to stage against Erica in a particular way, in a particular cadence, and he did not deviate from his own plan. And that's one thing. It's one thing to actually go through the staging procedure the way you want to do it, and then it's another thing to actually leave on time. He did both of those things. Uh, Matt Hartford was 008 against Erica's 23 or 25 light, which, again, 23-25 spectacular light, but 008 is otherworldly. He wins, goes to the final, and beats Greg Anderson on a whole shot. The last time those two met in the final was the Northwest Nationals back in 2019, the same day John Forrest won his 150th race. It was Matt Hartford beating Greg Anderson on a whole shot at that event. So um, Pro Stock Car was great. Hartford climbed on top of his Camaro, had a great celebration. Everybody wearing the cowboy hats and um, just kind of enjoying the revelry of racing at the Texas Motorplex, something that we didn't know if we were going to be able to do this year. And the fact we were able to do it was great. Houston will be normal points, uh, as you'd expect. Just want to clarify that. And then when we get to Vegas, it will be points and a half. So there's kind of a rundown on the competition side. And then we go to the other side of things. And, you know, we really have to talk about Alexis DeJoria's weekend. Um, again, unfortunately, she had the massive explosion in St. Louis. And then this fire that happened on Sunday in Dallas was beyond anything I've ever seen in person for sure and something that I'm not sure I ever would have expected to see in my you know modern NHRA announcing career I think there were certain things I used to think about when I when I thankfully got this job and I'd say well you know I'm not going to be able to see this happen or that happen I'm, you know Dan McClellan saw this and Steve Evans saw that and I'm probably never going to see that again um yeah, things like blowovers, and then lo and behold, we saw a blowover at Topeka a couple years ago. Uh, and then things like a funny car fire, the likes of which used to happen in the 70s, 80s, and, and early 90s. Um, 
I figured, you know, that's pretty much something that's been cured, quote unquote. And then all of a sudden Sunday happens and Alexis has, I mean, not just a, a funny car fire that's bad for 2020, one that was bad for, you know, history if you look back on it. And she is such a brave woman. She is such a determined racer that in St. Louis, the car explodes in her face in the finish line. They're back in the next round. They unfortunately lose. And then in Dallas, the car burns to the ground around her. She literally has to leap off the side of it into the arms of a safety safari guy. And she's back in the backup car like an hour later. And unfortunately for them, the same result. The car did not go down the racetrack, but um, her resolve and her ability and her just sheer guts to climb back in that thing so quickly after the initial fire and after everything that went down was a very admirable quality displayed by Alexis DeJoria and uh, hoping for a fast and far less dramatic weekend for her when we get down to Houston, Texas in just a couple of days. So there's kind of an overall recap of the event. I feel as though it was a highly entertaining race and really depending on, uh, not even depending on who you're rooting for. There was so much happening during the course of eliminations. We told a lot of stories and I really think it was an entertaining drag race for sure. I'm going to get another guy's opinion on that though. And his name is Tony Pedragon. He calls the races with me on Fox and on FS1. Tony Pedragon, let's talk Dallas and then let's talk Houston. How you doing, man? Hey, good morning, Brian. So, pretty interesting weekend, I think, in Dallas overall. We just talked about it a little bit in the lead-in. And I guess my first question for you is, did anybody, especially any of the points-leading cars, kind of show us anything in Dallas? Did, did they? Did anybody give us a hint as to what they're going to do over the next two races? Well, we'll start in top fuel with Steve Torrance. You know, he is the sun and the light. And, <laughs> you know, when you look at, when you look, I mean, they're just going to be hard to beat. And, you know, the interesting thing is Doug... Caladia is as close as they want to be. And, you know, you and I, we talked a little bit about, you know, framing that matchup up yeah. uh, against Billy in the semifinals. And, you know, it was really theirs to lose. And and uh, I'm sure they didn't set the car up to smoke the tires. You know, sometimes things happen. You know, maybe the clutch wears a little different. You know, maybe, the, maybe they put a fresh blower on it. But something happened to make that car break the tires loose. But when you look at the performance, I mean, they were – you know, stride for stride, being able to match specifically Steve. And they had him where they wanted him. They had him on the other side of the ladder, and uh, things really seemed to be going their way. But, um, you know, Billy made a good run, but Doug at 300ths of a second uh, jump off the starting line. And I'm just surprised they, uh, you know, they knocked the tires loose where they did. And I, I hear they did stay and make uh, at least one test run. So maybe they had some malfunction. Maybe they wanted to try something. Um, but I'm sure going into Houston, they're going to iron things out. But I, I just, I didn't expect, uh, I, we, I think we were anticipating a Doug and Steve final. Yeah. And, um, you know, although it's, it's, he didn't really stretch his, uh, points lead out. I don't think Steve's comfortable, but, um, I, I just think that's going to be a, that's, that's going to go down to the last race. But if you're Doug Coletta, you don't want to go down two round, one round, maybe because it's points and a half. But, um, I think he's going to, he's going to want to try to, definitely start the weekend by qualifying better when he goes to Houston. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's he's right now he's 51 back and it's like it's just it's it seems like that 51 seems like it's 151 in my mind anyway just watching the way that the Torrance cars have been running and obviously he's had a good car as well you know one St. Louis so it's like I guess I get caught up sometimes in the immediate memory of watching that Dallas race and almost forgetting that Doug did win and did beat Steve in a heads-up race in St. Louis but the 51 points now seems like a pretty wide bridge even with two races left yeah, and if he could if he could somehow get around, whether he has to do it himself or rely on someone else, and you know when you talk about the cars that can run some interference, I mean it's definitely Billy um, and Leah, you know, and you look at you know Clay and even Justin Ashley, even though they oiled the track three, I think three was it three out of four runs. Yeah, that was brutal. Yeah, and, and you know they're running that car hard, and and uh, you know one of the things that you have to do with these nitro cars is when you can get them to perform, you got to really fine tune them. I'm sure that, you know, that's something they're looking at. They, from what I understand, they feed that car good parts and uh, it's not a good way to make a living. And I think sometimes that pressure will shift over to the crew chief, the guy that's making those, you know, those uh, calls in terms of how to run the car. And, uh, at, you know, at some point they always have to answer to the, um, you know, the car owner, yeah, whoever owns the team. And, um, uh, 
you know, they'll have some explaining to do, but, uh, <laughs> right. but, but the car does perform. So, you know, I think Tony Schumacher, Leah, you know, Clay, uh, even Antron, I mean, there was some cars that ran good in the, in the first round, but I, I think at some point, I, I think at some point somebody's going to jump up and, and, and do the right thing to, to, you know, to Steve Torrance. It'll be interesting to see if anybody does that in the early rounds because that, of course, kind of changes the trajectory of everything. I want to jump to Funny Car because uh, that is the tightest race we have. It's only four points between uh, Hagen and Beckman. And, you know, as weird as this season has been and and kind of will go into the history books as being an 11-race deal, um, I still think – I think – I think we're going to be able to talk about this Hagen Beckman race to the finish as one of the all-time great points chases in NHRA history because it has been fantastic to watch. I agree with you, Brian, and it's literally if someone were to ask me, you got to put some money on it. I, I, it's it's almost a flip of a coin. I mean, it's that close. Hagen has some strong points. Beckman has some strong points, and and if you. I mean, if you had to rate them, you've, you've got to give both of them a, a 95. And that's, I, I don't know that we've seen that kind of parity with two guys that are going down to the wire, running for the championship um, in a long time, you know, so they're they're equally as good in the seat. I think what it's going to come down to, and it seems like, you know, a lot of championships come down to moments and yeah. big moments, you know, one round. It just is no different than, you know, big basketball games, football game. You know, you have two good teams. It's going to come down to one play. And I think that's what's going to happen here. And if you ask me, it's, it's going to come down to who, which one of these drivers is going to wake up, whether it's in Houston or in Vegas, and, and just be in that, you know, what, what anyone would call a zone. You know, who's just going to be better on that day? Because when you look at how the cars perform, they're almost identical, and that's what I love about this sport and and these championships. And make no mistake about it, this is a countdown. You know, whether it oh, absolutely, whether call, absolutely, whether we called it technically a count, call it what you want, but this is what it's coming down to. And when you look at the reaction times and what the average is, and what the the average of the cars and how they're performing, you know, we we I go back and I always study the ladder and I look at the pattern of some of the drivers, and you know, these drivers were in the 60 to 70 range and you can go back a couple of races and you see certain drivers you know they're dropping 40s and 50s and that's what's going to make the difference you know and it's it's sometimes it's the track and it's how the grip is initially and sometimes it's how the car is or maybe the humidity plays into how the car reacts but sometimes it's the driver and it's how good the driver feels and uh, well i don't know if it's wheaties or oatmeal or you know, bacon and eggs. I just think it's going to come down to one moment, and that driver's going to have to be good. And these teams, they're so good, and they're so refined, and they're so consistent at this stage. It's going to be a, it's going to be a heck of a showdown. Yeah, I mean, Tommy Johnson Jr. isn't out of it yet either. I mean, he's seventy-seven points back, and and it's Tommy continuously reminds us in in terms of his performance that we should always have him in the conversation. It's like when we stop talking about him, he wins St. Louis, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, wait a second, there he is again. He faded a little bit here uh, in Dallas, and you know, I think the big variable in Houston is obviously this surface is different than the surface in Dallas, and you know, last year it was. Um, last year it was a challenge we'll find out what it is going to be this year for these teams and i think we talk about only having the two rounds of qualifying we've seen a lot of good teams struggle with four attempts uh on the racetrack at baytown so it'll be interesting to watch how conservative people are on the first one and then how that affects them on the second one because as seemingly predictable as the surface was at the motorplex i feel like when we go to baytown it's almost the opposite it's always a chess match and you know that's one of the things that um you know, that really sets the stage. It's how they set up and how they perform in that first session. Believe it or not, that's that's going to affect what they do on Sunday. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that I, I, the coverage, you know, a lot of times we'll just show highlights of the first of the first qualifying session, but that's going to be important to keep an eye on, you know, for anyone that's, you know, following this points battle, it's going to, you're going to want to tune in to NHRA TV because that, that first session is so much more critical than you think. But, but then there are times that you can see a Doug Coletta that miss it, but it seems like, you know, it seems like they're always catching up and, you know, they did get into the first round and then the second round, but I'm sure it was, it was a sleepless night, you know, when you have to draw Antron um, and you can recover from that as they did. But 
um, I just think it's so it's so interesting to see uh, how they perform. It seems as if if you can come out, you know, like Tommy did in that first round. It just seems to take so much pressure off. And, yeah, and he's really not in the worst position. You know, he's he at least if, if you always have to look at the flip side. I'm sure he's considering well. At least we don't have the pressure that Beckman and Hagen do. And then you always hope that they can get tangled up, you know, somewhere, maybe not in the second round because he qualifies so well, but, you know, it'd be nice. They, they have to cooperate too. They have to, to run into one another in the semifinals. Yeah. I'm sure that Tommy's thinking the same thing that he thought in St. Louis. He's got to come out of Houston with a win. And that's very that's very likely. And, you know, one of the, the signature moments of this race that will stand the test of time that you and I were both, uh, you know, wide-eyed over as we move into pro stock here was Matt Hartford and Erica in the semifinals. And, you know, this guy who one out of a hundred times, somebody kind of makes a plan in their mind and actually executes on the plan, and he did it. And I think it impressed you and I both. And I was able to talk to Matt yesterday, and he, he was full on – you know, he wasn't pretending he didn't know what he was doing. He absolutely did what he did on purpose, and it worked. Well, I'm glad you said that because when he did his interview, and one of the comments that I made was, you know, this is something you have to, you got to brew this up. You know, you got to go back to your pits after the sem- or rather after the second round, and you've got to premeditate this. This is like a strategy. And then he said the opposite. He said, no, I really didn't think about it, but I didn't believe him. Yeah, I'm glad that he got to it, but. You know, Matt's, uh, he's easy to like, and, you know, I think when we listen to him on his interviews, it's just so authentic, it's so natural. If I, if I could give any advice to certain drivers is, you know, take a look at Matt Harper. You know, he's he's not he's not robotic. Uh, he's not rehearsed. Uh, just be genuine. I think our view is really, they want to see that, but I think they appreciate that, and they, they can see right through it. So I think his personality shows, and, you know, everything was going right for him. we should go back and look at the replays and see if that mike pence fly landed on <laughs> on eric's car on Greg's car but you know when you when you come up with strategy and what i like about what he did is we see we've seen this a lot you know i think we should give john force credit because if you ask some of the drivers they're gonna it's almost as if they're knocking him they're saying Oh, he deep stages. It's almost like they're going to discredit him. And I've always argued that, you know, there's an art. It's not easy to do. Brake pressure and certain things, a lot plays into deep staging and doing it properly. And I think that's one of the things that Force was so good at. And and, I, and we're not talking deep staging. I'm just talking strategy yeah. and psychological aspect of what Matt Hartford did because he made her wait when they pre-staged. And I've seen a lot of guys do that, but then they concede. It's like they cave in, and then they go ahead and give them what they want. And and he didn't do that. He made her wait to pre-stage. She rolled in, and he said, as if as if he told himself, "I've got seven seconds. I might as well use five of them." Yeah. And and he did it. And that's the right. If you want to put your opponent to sleep, or if you want to make them blink, or if you just want to make them impatient. Or second guess, and sometimes you know your foot. You hear a lot of drivers say when they double step the car, or when they get away with it, their foot starts to come down. So there's a lot of things that are happening, and those four or five seconds seem like eight or ten seconds. When you're in Erica's from her perspective, she's focused. She's not blinking. She's got her total focus on that tree counting down, and she had to wait, and it worked. And and you know it worked because you just need only look at the numbers now she still had a 25 yeah um you know she she didn't she didn't look away like some drivers do we've seen some drivers that are in a 150 yeah Uh, it goes real bad yeah (laughs) yeah but but matt he just his execution he did everything right pre-stage stage and then the most important thing was he left on time a 008 didn't roll it in didn't deep stage and then and i you know greg's greg's a good driver he'll usually bring it in the final round but I think that has an effect. It has a psychological effect on your opponent when you're that quick. And, and when I'm sure Greg heard all the rumblings, but hey, good for Matt Hartford. He earned it. He executed. It doesn't work all the time, but no. when it does, that's that's something we can look back on. If we ever do a piece on on that mental aspect of what drivers do, we got to show that Matt Hartford piece. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. And, um, you know, taking nothing away from Erica, obviously she still leads uh, Jason Line by 31 points because of the fact she won that uh, delayed St. Louis final. 
I was able to talk to Erica too, and she was super annoyed. Uh, it came across at her top end interview as well. And, um, you know, basically what she said to me was, uh, this will not happen to me again. You know, you got me once, but it ain't going to happen twice. And I kind of like that too. So, um, fingers crossed that they find themselves together in the second or third round at, uh, in Houston. That ought to be real interesting. You know, Brian, and I, I really, I, I respect that from Erica. And I think, I think our viewers and overall fans really need to, to understand how that comes across because we want, we, we want excitement. We, we actually, we yearn and beg for drama. And then when we get a driver that, that gives us their, their genuine thoughts and however she said it, it, it was almost as if she came off a sore loser. But that's not that's not the way it works. That she's just showing her you know her true emotion, and and finally somebody that it really affects to, to you know to lose. And um, I think that's something that should be applauded because you know I think most people when when somebody throws their gloves or you know they don't shake somebody's hand, it's like for crying out loud, that's not a sore loser. No, that's a guy passion that's finally giving us the the real you know the the real effect i think what's more fake is when they walk up and hug and and shake hands and i see that so much and i know i know because i'm i'm kind of a little bit of an insider still and i know some of these drivers and i know it's not real i know you really don't well you don't want to hug that guy and you don't really love that guy that much right but i wish i wish more of them would show their their true uh, reaction and their true emotion like Erica did. Yeah, no, I remember, you know, when Tanner Gray was out, especially the first season, and, and he won the championship his second year, but his first season he was in the he was in contention really until about St. Louis, and I think he red-lit at St. Louis that year in the countdown and, and was out early, and, you know, he was furious with himself, and I think we had video of him, like, taking his Hans device and, you know, sending it into low-Earth orbit or crushing it into pieces <laughs> or something, but it was like – all these self-righteous people on the internet freaked out about how this is, uh, you know, and it's like, it's like, no, the guy's a competitor. Like, you know, when, yeah. I don't know, it just blows my mind that, like you said, we people like all these drivers don't have any personality and then God forbid they show a personality and it's like, stop, stop having a personality. It's like, uh, what do you want? You know, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Watch Steve Torrance, watch Matt Hartford. Those are the guys that, um, you know the people that knock them that are sending a tweet and saying, "Oh, what a sore loser!" You, uh, what I will say to you, fans, in all in all respect, you love it and you know it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and uh, we go to Pro Stock Motorcycle, which has its own twist and turns. Matt Smith uh, wins the St. Louis delayed final, is crushing it and qualifying, and then shows up <laughs> for the first round, and the bike won't start. That was crazy. Yeah, you know what a <laughs> it's like what a uh, what a what a uh, uh, it was like oatmeal in the <laughs> <laughs> pro stock bike, and you know you got to feel for Angel. I mean, she had the best bike in eliminations, yeah. And and that just goes to show you that hey, nobody's perfect, and it's not easy. You know, you, you always go back and say, well, why? How did how does she do that? How did they throw it away? It's like every time you go to that starting line, you're you're like a hair trigger, and you know, the good drivers make it look easy. And, and if you break it down in black and white, yeah, it's easy. You go up, you pre-stage, you stage, and you leave. But, you know, there's a lot of, of, of emotional things that, that factor in and, and the psychological things and, and just the pressure. I mean, and this is why I always try to point out it's not easy to be in a fast race car, a good one, because I've seen a lot of drivers that are quick off the starting line. They're doing everything right. And finally, their car starts to perform. And it's like now, my friend, you know what pressure's like. Yeah, because now you know, you know you can win. Now all of a sudden, you, now all of a sudden, there's an expectation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sure Angel, she's going to go back. I mean, she's won a lot of races. That's just one of them. It's happened to the best of them that you go back and look at, and and say that, wow, should have won that one. But uh, you can redeem yourself if you go to Houston and you do the same thing. And I can't see why she wouldn't have a good bike there. And um, you know, the Matt Smith thing. That's that's just helpless. I mean, you're. It's like you want to watch. You want to see what the the Harleys are doing, but it's painful to watch them inch a little bit closer and uh, whatever part or whatever failed, I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen again. Yeah, and you know, it actually, it <clears throat> I guess in some ways worked out the best way it possibly could have for Smith because of the fact that uh, the final ended up, ended up being Jerry Savoie and Joey Gladstone, neither of which are championship contenders. Um, Angel knocked out Andrew earlier on in the, in the day, so Andrew wasn't able to advance any further, and uh, Scotty Polachek had his own set of problems when his bike bogged and he lost early. So, you know, Matt Smith leads Scotty Polachek by 49 points. 
And the funny part about this, he's only 59 ahead of Andrew Hines, and I feel like this is the least we have talked about Andrew Hines in years, but there he is. He's still actually a contender. Yeah, and that's the scariest part about him is they really haven't performed to their capabilities, and you have to wonder. And we always wait. You know, anytime we see the the Harley struggle uh, during qualifying, you know, you give them a run or two and they figure it out. And they were getting closer. They were getting better, but they're going to look at Angel's data and – you know, so they're, they're going to be there. They're going to get there. And uh, it's just, it's such an uncomfortable feeling for Matt because the couple of championships that I won, they came down to the wire. They came down to the, you know, the last race or the second to the last race. And um, th- there's no comfort unless you go in with a big lead. And I, I, I think only a few drivers have had, or riders have had the luxury of doing that. So, um, but, but that's good. You know, sometimes that pressure makes a, a rider, a driver better. Uh, but these Harley riders, by no stretch, are out of contention. They're uh, they're, they're going to give Matt probably more than he would like. What's uh, what's kind of your read on Houston? Obviously, you raced there for years and years. Just talk a little bit about the the racetrack itself and kind of conditions wise. It looks like we're going to be um, almost the same weather wise on Sunday as we were in Dallas in terms of temperature, somewhere in the eighty degree range. Humidity will probably be up there a little bit. But uh, kind of what's the book on Houston as far as the racers go? Well, there's so many things in terms of the atmospheric pressure. You know, we, we get to, like, I think it's one of the lowest yeah. in elevation. It's like 10 feet above sea level. Yeah. So you get you get some barometer. You get a little free horsepower. But I, I don't know that the good cars, and what was impressive about Dallas, and this is one of the things, one of the benefits of this all-concrete track, when it's good, it's real good. And, you know, we got up to, like, 86 to 80, I think it was close to 88 degrees on Sunday with the humidity, and we still saw cars like like Doug and we saw Steve. I mean, they were banging out 70, 71, 72. Those are, you know, that's pretty impressive performance under those conditions. And they were doing it in both lanes. And even in Funny Car, uh, Caps, and you saw Lexus that ran at 89, um, Wilkerson. But during eliminations when it got hot, it was, it was pretty much the performance that stood out to me was Caps and Beckman and Hagen. You know, they were dropping dimes, dropping those 90s. And I... I I think it's safe to say we'll see more of that, you know, but there are some adjustments that the tuners are going to make. They're going to make some mechanical adjustments in the engine, uh, maybe some fine tuning on the supercharger. And you go back and look at all this, the cylinder dropping, you know, like I know there was a lot of cars and, you know, I mentioned the humidity probably plays the biggest role in that. And, but it's, it's how they deliver the fuel and it's not always the fuel. Sometimes uh, it's the air, you know, maybe the supercharger will fall off a little bit. And, if, and when that happens, you know, the, the engines get rich. So, you know, that's that's just one of the things that, you know, the tuners constantly have to stay on top of. And uh, I just, I see the track being real quick and fast, regardless of, you know, mid to low 80s. Um, I, I think, you know, a few years ago, we would have looked at those conditions and say, wow, it's going to get slower. But yeah. that didn't happen in Dallas, so I don't see any reason it'll happen in Houston. One last question before I let you go. There's a lot of people that were skeptical of what a, you know, effectively an 11-race season would look like. There were people early on that were talking about, you know, hopefully there's enough races to make this a legitimate championship. Um, I... You know, I was of the opinion to start with that that argument was kind of stupid. And now, having lived in this thing and will live in it to the end, I think it's a really dumb argument. And I don't think there's any way you can. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think there's any way you can look at what's going on right now and tell anybody that wins a championship this year that they didn't earn it. Well, Brian, you brought up. I agree with you, and I'm glad that you uh, you said the word and I didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I won't be alone getting the text messages, but. It's been pretty quiet lately. I think they're starting to understand that, um, you know, this is this is a big sport. Uh, you need only watch a little NFL on Monday to realize that, um, you know, if you want to play, if you want to play big time, you're going to have to suffer the consequences when you have a bad day. But, um, you know, I, I think for any driver, and you know who you are, that said it may not be a legitimate season. Uh, Brian, you brought up the fact that all you have to do is go back in time. You know, you mean to tell me that Don Garlitz didn't, that wasn't a legitimate championship or Shirley right. or Ray Beetle when it was a shortened season. So we've seen plenty of action. We've seen plenty of drama. And every team that has been in the top 10 has had plenty of opportunity. And that's what it comes down to. So this will be as legitimate. In fact, this is probably a little more difficult. Yeah. You know, it's not as forgiving. You know, so you could argue that, that this might be. I mean, if there's a little asterisk next to the championship, it should be 
you know, a, a, a little gold medal saying that you right. did it in probably the most adverse conditions because sometimes the drivers don't understand the economic and all the adjustment that, you know, the team owner has to make and, and the they have to correspond with, you know, the tough decisions that our sport has had to make. So it, it's, it hasn't been easy yet when we get to the track, um, as we should, we have a tendency to think, well, it's kind of normal because these cars are the show and, and they're the stars and the drivers are the stars and they go down the racetrack and somebody's holding up a trophy and you get somebody that's, you know, that's throwing their stuff and, and it's like everything's normal when, you know, when racing's underway. Yeah, I feel the same way, and especially last weekend, had a great crowd there in the in the racetrack, and it was, uh, you know, like you said, high drama on Sunday afternoon. So, all right, man. Well, hey, listen, you're probably wrenching on your son's go kart or painting something or whatever, but uh, you get two days, and then I'll see you in see you in Houston. I'm eating a lot of fiber because we're heading to uh, we're heading to Houston. I loaded up on Mexican food, and I'm <laughs> trying to shed off the weight because when I land, that's where I'm going straight back to a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> he knows all the good spots, folks. I promise you that. <laughs> Tony, thanks, See man. You, See you this weekend. You and now we transition from the world, according to Tony Pedragon, into the world of National Dragster with National Dragster Editor-in-Chief, Phil Burgess. How you doing, Phil? Hey, good. How you doing, Brian? Doing good, man. And, uh, you know, it's funny how life works. Uh, today we all got dealt uh, some very unexpected news, and we're going to talk about uh, the race in Dallas and talk about the upcoming race in Houston. But um, all of us in the world of NHRA drag racing kind of got shocked, really, in the middle of production of the show. We found out, unfortunately, that Eric Lane uh, had lost his life this week, which is just uh, beyond words sad. It's just stunning. I mean, you know, such a talented guy, you know, worked for a lot of good teams and was, was responsible for – the success of some of those teams, you know, Robert Heist's team, Ron Cap's team, obviously, you know, instrumental in Casco's comeback and, you know, what he's working for Cruz this year. It's, it's just tragic. It's stunning on the heels of, you know, you know the problem we had with Don Lagana earlier this year. It, it's been a tough year for the for the sport and the type of fraternity that we all are. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, one of the things I, I think about with Eric, um, he was one of those guys that once you knew him for 20 minutes, you felt like you'd known him your whole life. And also, you know, the way he came up and the people he worked with, he always did a really good job in my eyes of of maintaining those relationships it, it's such a small like you said it's a small community it's a small fraternity out there and very quickly you figure the people that can maintain a relationship and those that can't and eric was still very tight with all the guys he worked with yeah yeah maybe all professional you know we know how this business goes you know what have you done from me lately and, and guys move from team to team like get offered jobs or or get uh you know dismissed from the job they had but he always kept those lines of communication open. I don't know if a single person that didn't like him. No, you're 100% right. And, uh, you know, his relationship with Ron Tobler, you know, he was Ron's second on Ron Caps's car when they won the championship. And he worked with Ron for many years before kind of getting his uh, his shot to stand on his own two feet, so to speak, with Bob Tasca. And, you know, they were able to win a couple of uh, couple of Wallies during the course of that uh, relationship. And it's... Um, it's just one of those things, and I certainly don't want to, you know, dwell on the negative. But I do, you know, you you obviously your perspective you have on the sport and the, the amount of time you've been in it and how long and kind of how deep you've been inside drag racing. I know that, um, you know, it's just sometimes these things sting a lot worse than others, and this is one of those times. Yeah, absolutely. There's almost no words for it. I've been kind of mulling it over since I got that call this morning, and just you know, remembering the interviews I had with the guy. It's a super good dude. Always had time to talk to you and explain this. You know, yeah. something maybe you didn't understand or. Or, or was upfront about what happened. You know, if he made a mistake, he would tell you he made a mistake. Just, uh, just a super down to earth guy. Absolutely was. And to your last point, yes, it is very rare in the in the world. And I'm, I'm not saying this to be negative toward anybody else, but it's super rare when you walk up to a guy, a crew chief, after a run where something has gone awry, or you talk to him a couple hours later, and they don't give you they give you the actual answer <laughs> definitively of what happened, as opposed yeah. to we figured it out, we've got it fixed, is what we normally hear. But when he kind of walks you through these problems, it, it gives you a good window into kind of who he was as a person and uh, kind of how he approached uh, how he approached things. So. Um, it's going to be very difficult this weekend. I mean, it's it's almost unfathomable to think about Cruz Pedregon's team now having to compete this weekend, which they will. Um, but it's going to be a very emotional weekend, not only for them, but really for anybody that was has been around this sport in any capacity for for any amount of years. Yeah, sure. I mean, he touched everybody. You know, when he was with JFR, he touched a lot of people there with all the teams they had, and obviously at Schumacher, uh, you know, all all the teams there. He, he was interacting with all those guys, and they'll all be at the races this weekend. And he won. That's going to be hard. 
we are uh, we are going to be remembering him on our NHRA and Fox broadcast, and I'm sure we'll be remembering him at the racetrack as well as his peers will be. But um, moving the conversation ahead, and, and we're going to see how this plays out over the next several days, of course. But um, let's look at the Dallas race for a minute before we necessarily talk about Houston. And I asked Tony Pedregon this question. I'm going to ask you the same one. What teams really kind of stood out to you in Dallas that showed you something? Who did you look at for their performance in Dallas and kind of said, okay, these guys have showed me they have the gumption to do it or somebody that maybe showed you that they might not? Well, I think first of all, I think about about Beckman. I mean, those guys, they really came into a hole. If they lose that final round to Matt Hagen, you know, it's certainly not over. But Hagen had beaten them like a drum this year. They were 0-4 against Hagen. Uh, this year, and I don't think they didn't know that. Uh, and the way that car ran on on Sunday, uh, you know, three three nineties in a row to finish out the race. You know, Hagen couldn't match that pace. They faltered a little bit in the final there, but I think uh, that uh, the Guido and, and uh, Medlin and, and Beckman they all got their act together and, and pulled together. And it, it wasn't make or break for them, but it was the next closest thing. It really was, and the fact that they were able to make that car repeat within five thousandths over the course of three runs was, I mean, one of the more amazing things I think I've ever watched in funny cars specifically. We've definitely seen uh, dragster competitors, uh, notably the Capco team, put together some incredibly tight Sundays. But in Nitro Funny Car, you can make three runs within five thou. It is, it is astonishing. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of motivation over there. Obviously, you know that that team's uh, future for 2021 is certain because uh, they're losing the Chandler family backing. Uh, you know, that may have been Jack Beckman's last win for a while. We don't, we don't know. So I think he won it in the worst way. He never won that race. He, he'd been going to the race as a fan, you know, or, or and or crew member for years. And, uh, I talked to him yesterday in the airport. We had, we're on the same flight leaving, uh, leaving Dallas. And it, it was very important to him and, and not, not just on the points ramifications for everything else that it may or may not stand for in his career. If he goes back to work on elevators, he knows that he won that race and, uh, you know, had another Wally to hold. Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty great, and obviously his uh, his appreciation of history and the fact that this was the first Camping World Wally of the era uh, certainly carries some additional weight with Jack as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody gets a chance, Odd Week did a great uh, article online about Beckman and his uh, search for the history books and his uh, collection of drag news and hot rod magazines. It's uh, worth a read if you can look it up. Uh, talks about all the the, the, the debunking he's, he's finding out about dates and things people aren't certain and helping us um, assure that the history is right going forward where maybe it's been, uh, you know, bad information carried on from time to time. Jack's, you know, definitely in, in the mode of uh, a quest to get all that information right. Yeah, it's great, and it's certainly uh, something that I think benefits all of us in the long run. Uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up was Matt Hartford, you know, and the whole Matt Hartford-Erica deal in the semifinals. To me, a very classic pro-stock moment, right? This is like this is the type of stuff I think as a kid watching this category in the 80s and 90s, I lived to see. We see it so rarely now, but he executed his plan perfectly. As that was going down, I was watching. You know, she went in first, and he took his time going in, and I'm like, Matt, you're playing with fire. You know, you're just going to make her matter and matter. And, and, and she's already, sorry, badass enough without, without motivation. And, you know, and I, I've just seen that backfire in so many guys. And, you know, for him to pull a double eight out of that and leave on her and beat her on the whole shot, uh, I know she couldn't have been happy about that for a number of reasons. Yeah, she wasn't, and and she was her normal professional self in expressing that displeasure. But she was definitely very annoyed and uh, wore it on her sleeve and said as much on camera and and uh, you know effectively said, "Let him try it again." You know, you got me once, but let him try it again, which I don't think he's going to be doing anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, cause, you know, how many times have you seen that a guy that, that thinks he needs that and does that and messes around and then you know you, you play with fire? You do it against you know against Eric. You tried to do it against Ricky Smith or something like that. No, it is. Uh, it ranks only second in the last couple of years to the Greg Anderson qualifying bonanza of Pomona last year in terms oh, of right. <laughs> in terms of doing the seemingly impossible. That that to me is a yeah. one and one a at this point. Um, what did you see, what did you see else? What else did you see in the pro stock category that uh, that impressed you or somebody that certainly let uh, let the world know that they were very serious and trying to and trying to leave with a big one this year? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Jason, my, my heart goes out to him. He, you know, he really needed to beat Eric in that uh, St. Louis final. Yeah. Uh, didn't get it done. Um, barely claws his way out of round one. You know, they just hammered in round two. It's just a, it's tough. I, I think Eric's team is tough. You know, but even if they don't show on the all the winner circles, um, I, I, you know, I, I just feel like, like they're going to they're gonna take it all away again this year. At this point, with the two races left and, of course, the finals being points and a half, in your in your mind, in the Phil Burgess mind, where is the uh, 
this much is too much in terms of a points deficit. Like if we're talking about Tommy Johnson Jr., he's sitting back 77, you yeah. know, is that – where is your kind of watermark in terms of still in contention or not at this point? I mean, if you look at all the biggest biggest point points lead is Torrance, he's, and he's only up 51 over, over Doug Coletta. So that's, you know, you know two, two and a half rounds. Yeah. Uh, and with points and a half in, in Vegas, I, I got to feel like you, you got to come into to you got to leave Houston, you know, with a good good hundred maybe. Yeah, to feel safe. To feel comfortable. Yeah, to feel yeah, safe. Yeah, I agree with that. And in, in other so, conversations, so yeah, I mean, this, yeah. You know, yeah, I was having some conversations. I mean, it, yeah, it was like if you have a hundred points coming out of this race, then maybe you can breathe a little bit. But other than that, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Anything less than that, because we we know what can happen. You know, you can, you can get beat in the first time. Look at look at Matt Smith there in, in, in Dallas. You know, bike doesn't start in the first round. You know, that can happen. That kind of thing can happen to anybody. Yeah, that was an interesting thing for to watch as well because not just the fact that the bike wouldn't start in the first round because you know this like the championship anybody who wins a championship over the course of a year you know um, outside of you know Prudhomme winning every race but one back in the seventies pretty much you need to have a moment where something kind of bad happens to you and then something kind of bad happens to the people that are chasing you. And honestly, Matt could not have picked a better day for his motorcycle not to start in the first round because of what right. happened thereafter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually it was, it was just a mess after that. I mean, when Joey Gladstone gets to the final, you know, beating people, you know, they he probably shouldn't have beaten. Um, you know, so we saw with Giannis Linus last year at the finals. Yeah. I mean, look how that whole thing played out for Andrew Hines. That, that was the, the all time, you know, <laughs> parallel, you know, that could never happen again in a parallel universe. It's just mind blowing. So it can happen at any race. We've seen it over the years. Guys that guys and gals that have only won one race and they got there through, you know, either, you know, just getting down the track or, or fortunate breaks and, you know, any of that can happen in Vegas. You know, that, that track can be depending on the weather and the wind and you know, it's, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be interesting. You know, what's interesting to me is when we look at Pro Stock Motorcycle, because you had mentioned it, you know, we think about the, the season that Andrew Hines is having, and it's not a very Andrew Hines season. This is not the this is not the type of thing we're used to seeing this guy do. And even on a micro basis, we're not seeing him have uh, a bike that is all that fast, really, over the last couple of races, yet he is only 59 points out of the lead. And I guess that speaks to the, you know, the, kind of the diversity we've had of the winners on that side, but... Is Andrew Hines in a position, do you think, to, to make some sort of miraculous discovery over these last two races and, and actually challenge Smith? Or do you really think – because when I see Matt Smith and Polacek, I really see Matt Smith 1 and Matt Smith 2 in terms of the points count. Uh, do you think Do you think have, Hines can bust back in? I, I just don't know. I mean, that, that team's been – you know, other than Angel winning, you know, 82 earlier this year, that team hasn't – you know, Andrew hasn't won in like eight or nine races. Yeah. Eddie hasn't won since the brainer 2018. You know, for for guys won forty seven Wallies, that that's a, that's a big slump, and I don't know exactly what's wrong with them. Um, I don't think it's mental. I think that there's things with the bikes they haven't quite figured out. Yeah. Um, and but but your point, I mean, you know, you know, Matt and Scotty, you know, it's just really changed to an, uh, to an EBR world here, where it was a Harley world for a long time. And you know, Matt's got the power. I think Scotty's uh, quicker on the tree. Um, I, I I think it's going to be between those two. I mean, I hate to you, you could never count out the Harley team just for everything they've done historically but you know it's an uphill battle for those guys yeah an absolute fact and and it will be an uphill battle at this point for Doug Coletta as well and you know to me one of the seminal moments of this season was the semifinal round in Dallas when it was a full-on Coletta Torrance confrontation I mean it was both sides of it that's this was the you know, to me, this was a, a watershed moment for one way or the other because you're either going to stem the tide if you're the Coletta team or you're going to try to pile it on uh, the Torrance side of it. And, of course, the Torrance uh, family succeeded on both sides of it. There is a mental yeah. element to all of this stuff that we can't necessarily quantify, but I have to believe that that was not a good situation on the Coletta side when both of those cars went down to the Torrance side. Yeah, yeah. you, you got to worry about, you know, the serendipity of all that, you know, for – if anybody else is running Doug in a pile there, they, they probably don't beat him. Yeah. You know, um, but you know, you know, we all know that both those capital cars are, are pretty much identical as far as performance goes. I mean, you know, certainly Billy used up Steve earlier this year. Yes. And, you know, Steve's turned it around the last couple of races. Uh, either of those cars, you know, could win and, and, uh, it's just a bad drop for Doug Lita. But, you know, you know, they say you gotta be the best. You gotta beat the best. And, you know, he didn't get it down there. But he's only 51 points back. You know, that, that team can turn it on. They've got a lot of experience over there. There's certainly no one more seasoned behind the wheel than Doug. Um, Steve has got some good uh, countdown pressure that he's dealt with the last couple of years, obviously. So he knows that drill. Doug's been there, too. Never got it done. 
I was really thinking this was going to be Doug's year. I mean, he led the points from the get-go and, and was looking really good and kind of hit the, the skids there in the summer. Uh, I think the team has another act in it, but will it be enough, you know, trying to battle both the capital cars? Yeah, I think what's going to be interesting is in Houston. You know, obviously last year in Vegas it was still kind of a, um, still kind of a battle, and then the parachutes fell out of the back of the car, and that you know that was just one of those right. moments where you're like, what is cosmically what is happening here? Um, and so I look at Houston a little bit in the same way I was looking at Vegas last year, and you know if there are some demons to conquer in Houston, and he can succeed there, maybe he can exercise the parachutes falling out last year at the final race of the season. I, I personally, you know, I personally want to see this. Thing come down to you know the semifinals or the finals at Vegas and that's going to require Doug to to make some hay while the sun shines down there and yeah. if the temperatures he, stay he, with well, go ahead I'd say all, he, he really just only needs to really you know go round for round with Torrance yeah I mean like I said it's only 51 now even if he loses the final there he's 71 back that's you know two and a half rounds at, at Vegas you know all, all four of these are going to go to go to Vegas you know nobody's going to wrap it up in, in, in Houston pointing least mathematically Correct. Yeah, but, uh, the, yeah. There'll yeah. be a chance. There'll be a chance for any of them to, to switch hands at the last second. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about to. a little bit about Houston. Um, obviously, we're only a couple hours east of where we were in Dallas, but really two very different racetracks. Especially when we talk about you know elevation. We're basically on the water uh, down there yeah. in Baytown, and it's a lot different surface too. We have seen over the last couple of years that this place can be uh, mildly tricky for the teams, and that was when we used to race in the springtime when it was cool. We're going to have 80-some degree weather out there, so this could be another one of those kind of equalizers when we're, ra- we're racing at the you know the wrong track at the wrong time, so to speak. Right, yeah. I was really looking forward to Houston this year because you know, everyone remembers when we first went there back in uh, 88, it was in the fall, and we broke all kind of records. So, you know, Team Snow made the first MHRA four-second run. Um, three, three or four national records were set, so I was really looking forward to that coming back and having cool temperatures, but not looking that way, trending that way right now. So to your point, you know, having the most horsepower, you know, might not be the uh, the benefit would be if, if it was cooler temperatures there. That, that would, you know, tend to favor the, you know, some, some you know, obviously the DSR cars and, and the Torrance cars. So uh, we'll see if weather and track conditions are the equalizer that uh, allows these guys to scramble back into it. One of the guys that's making his debut um, in Houston is Bob Bodie the third, Bob Bodie's son. And, you know, it is in this year that has been so bizarre in so many ways we have seen a lot of first timers we see Krista Baldwin just got oh, yeah. a top fuel license Joey Haas has come out and done a nice job and yeah. Bodie the third is a great story we're actually going to talk to him for NHRA.com this week to me because it really is a very traditional drag racing story that we might not hear as much about anymore where this kid grew up with his dad who owned a funny car and all he ever wanted to do was drive it and now he's going to have the chance yeah, yeah I mean it's, it's, it's cool you know to your point you know, with uh, especially with the fourth team sitting out this year, there's been a little bit of uh, room for, for guys to come in. Like you mentioned Joey Haas, we have Lee Calloway, you know, Cameron Frey. Seeing Kevin Tinsley back, back in action driving Dexter Tuttle's car this weekend, and he's going to be back in Dell's car uh, for Houston and Vegas. Um, you know, guys like, you know, but Jack White and Tom Simpson showing up in funny car, Gary Gensham driving out from California. And it's cool. So, so to have Bodie uh, join that, I mean, the kid, kid was a terror in junior dragster. I have no doubt that, that he has the mindset and the skills, uh, you know, to get started in that, obviously, when you get in a funny car, it's a whole different thing. But, um, yeah, I think that's going to be funny. You know, Bob and Alice are just great, great people, and to see the, the next generation come in there, uh, looking forward to seeing that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be really fun, and uh, we'll see if he can. We do have a bump spot in funny car this weekend, so he's actually going to have to earn his spot for his first race, too, which should be fun to watch him over the two qualifying sessions. Uh, one last thing I wanted to bring up before I let you go. You were on the grounds in Dallas. You saw the Alexis fire in person, just like I did, and... Um, I and I have never in person witnessed a funny car fire like that. I certainly saw a lot of them in the Diamond P and they walked away series when I was a kid sitting on the carpet watching the VHS tapes. But man, it has been a lot of years since one burned that bad. Yeah, that was really something. You know, you watch, you know, our band's pointing the tower. You know, you watch it go down there and it, see on TV it lights up. That black smoke just keep pouring out of it. It was like a you know like a seventy fire. Um, you know, I don't remember you know seeing one like that in a long time. The, the, the cars have been so good with diapers and the onboard extinguishers and, and the flame retardant bodies. Uh, you know, that, that was so weird. I mean, she stepped off it, didn't see any problems at first, apparently broke a couple of rods. And it, it, when it lit up later, it just lit and just wouldn't go out. It was scary for a while there, you know, watching all that smoke, uh, you know, just pouring off that body. Uh, you know, of course, you know, 
safety systems in these cars and driver fresh air systems, you know, help, you know, minimize any severe danger. But it, it was scary to watch and, and unprecedented for, you know, you know, funny car fire in the last five, six years for sure. Yeah, and, and thankfully we had a uh, you know one of our we had the safety safari on there immediately, but we apparently had the largest safety safari guy in the in human history stationed to that car because uh, she <laughs> she she leapt off the car into this guy's arms, and I've yet to meet that guy, but he is a he is a large order because he basically caught her in midair, crazy. Yeah, she saw that her dirty dancing move, so that was <laughs> that was kind of fun. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She you know obviously you know she was having problems getting the car stopped, obviously, and then was standing through the hatch trying to still drive it. Yeah, and then them you know bailing out once once got uh, too uncomfortable, but uh, yeah that that was a, that was as bad a one as I've seen as far as long lasting and damage to the car uh, for a while. And you know I think not that she needed this reinforcement from anybody, certainly not from uh, the peanut gallery out there, but you know anybody that ever wants to question her um, resolve or dedication to drag racing can just watch uh, the last two weeks and and then you know. St- st- stick a put a sock in it because you know there's there's a lot of people that would not have the the temerity to get back in either one of those cars after that happened sure sure i mean you know the the, the boomer there in, in st louis and then you come back you know have you know the same probably even worse because now it's burning up all the wiring and all the stuff and you know switching to a backup car you know it says a lot about, about dell and nikki and the guys and, and you know and her you know she's she's fearless i mean she's dedicated to this thing uh you know no matter you know what what you think of if you know her past career, she's she won Indy. She's had yep. other things. She's hit hard walls before and bounced back. And, and you know the desire is there. I mean, for sure, she's she's hardcore funny car driver. Yeah, and hopefully uh, she has a less eventful weekend and she can celebrate this uh, rough patch with uh, maybe a Wally this weekend. That would kind of throw a uh, that would throw a neat neat monkey wrench into the works if she had found herself yeah, in the final. Would. And the way things are going, who knows who's going to win one of these things? Uh, uh, yeah. Somebody's going to break the I mean, DSR lock. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even look at Promot from Dallas, you know, Brandon Steiner, you know, winning his first race, beating yeah. Stevie in the final. You know, I, I didn't see that coming. You know, and, the, and he's second in points now. It, you know, weird things are happening. I was definitely blown away when I looked at the Promod points and see Stevie Fast Jackson with 372, Snyder right behind him at 353, and then Janice right behind him at 338. So yeah. it's yeah. like we're trying to keep our fingers on all these different stories, and I love the Promod class, but even I had missed out on how tight the points had become, especially with Snyder winning. So that'll yeah. be another yeah, point hit, of hit, focus. He had been in a couple of semifinals, but, you know, he's, he's playing small ball. And, and making it work, you know that's uh, and that's going to be you know that's another one's going to go to a shootout. I mean, two more races to go with that, and it's, it's only you know what less than a round. And and Houston is kind of a curveball for these guys because they were not expecting to go there, but with the right. issues we had in St. Louis, they uh, pointed everybody and said, "Just go ahead and bring this stuff down to Houston." <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, that'll be fun for the for the crowd in Houston that haven't yeah. seen them for a while. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a great you know, show. Patrick you know, Patrick Stock probably going to finish. Oh, uh, looks like Aaron Stanfield's going to lock that up there, but uh, you know. Weirder things are happening. Yeah, exactly. That one's never over till it's over either. But uh, Stanfield having a spectacular year, multiple wins, U.S. Nationals included, and he's come along nicely in the pro stock car too. We look at his starting line performance in that car, and it's really come into its own over the last. Uh, really, since we come back in July, he's been a lot more aggressive. Um, in my in my estimation, it certainly his reaction time average shows it than he had been before. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a, that's another talented kid that we can talk about uh, on an upcoming episode as well. So, Phil, I appreciate you, appreciate you taking the time, man. And, again, uh, uh, just uh, shocking and sad news about Eric Lane. Certainly appreciate your perspective there and definitely on the overriding stories of our points chases as well. All right. Sounds good. Uh, thank you, Brian. Thanks, Phil. Always love talking to Phil Burgess. The guy is incredible and has uh, been such a huge part in documenting the history of NHRA drag racing for the better part of 40 years now. And uh, just really, really great perspective he brings and certainly the connections and relationships he has in drag racing um, gets him places and gets him information that uh, those of us mere mortals just simply can't get. So thank you to Phil Burgess. Thank you to Tony Pedragon. And, you know, as I was making this show on this particular day, which is uh, making this show on Tuesday before we go to Houston. So this would be October 20, October 20th. Um, it was between the interviews of speaking to Tony Pedragon and speaking to Phil Burgess that we all received the news of Eric Lane's passing. So uh, if you're listening to the show wondering why no mention was made of Eric Lane's passing at the beginning of the show or with Tony Pedragon, it is simply because none of us knew that it had happened yet. It has been a very hard day around the world of NHRA drag racing, and as mentioned, we will remember Eric Lane on our NHRA on Fox broadcast this weekend, and I'm sure you will see 
a massive outpouring of support for Eric and his family through the world of NHRA drag racing. We look forward to going to Dallas this weekend, or rather going to Houston this weekend. We look forward to having the second-to-last race of the year, but our excitement certainly tempered by the hard news of Eric Lane's passing. Wish everybody well. We hope you will tune in this weekend to FS1 to watch our qualifying and live eliminations coverage. It will be a very exciting race, a very intense race, and certainly a very emotional race from Baytown, Texas. Thanks, everybody. I'm Brian Loans. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. And once again, stay tuned to NHRA.com for more information regarding Eric Lane.